0: As we continue in our worship this morning, uh, we'll be looking at the Word of God and seeing what it, what it has to tell us on this day, and as you know, we've been going through our series on the drama of redemption, uh, we've been talking specifically over the last few weeks about the book of 1 Kings, and so we saw the, the rise of Solomon, we saw how Solomon and Israel reached its peak, and how they, they built the temple and dedicated it to the Lord, and the fire of the Lord came down, and there was re- weeping and repentance, and now... Unfortunately, we're going to see the decline and the rapid fall of the, of the Israelites' empire and how it splits and divides into to two different kingdoms, and so we're going to see how that happens today, and before we take a look at that, let's just go to the Lord for a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this time. We just thank you, Lord, for, uh, for gathering us here today. May your word be exalted, may, may Jesus be exalted in just his cross, and his life lived in our place for our sins and his, his death in our place for our sins so that we can have life. May that be just seen as glorious and beautiful today. Lord, may you speak and not me. May your thoughts go forth and not my own. We just thank you for these things and that it's your word and your spirit would speak to us and convict our hearts and draw us closer to you this morning. In, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of 1 Kings chapters 11 through 14 today. and We're going to be talking about how the kingdom, the kingdom divided. Essentially, what happens just overall is that Solomon takes a tragic fall due to idolatry, due to several different things, and what happens is because of his fall, Israel is divided into two different kingdoms, and we see one kingdom is taken over by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. I know that's a hard name. I was practically trying to say it in my sleep just to make sure I pronounced it right this week, Rehoboam, and then we have the other kingdom for Jeroboam, who was God's God's appointed successor to, to take over Israel. And so we're going to look and see uh, pretty much basically how what we're going to see this morning is to observe God's un- unfolding plan of redemption as seen in the fall of Israel's empire. We're going to see how the, the sin of idolatry com- uh, contributed to, to the fall of Solomon and even in the empires and the reigns of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then we're going to also observe how God remains faithful to his covenant even in the midst of the sinfulness of his people. So today as we look at 1 Kings chapters 11 through 14, this kind of structure that we're going to take is we're going to see a distracted father in King Solomon. Then we're going to see a deceived son in King Rehoboam. Then we're going to see a disturbed successor in King Jeroboam. And then we're going to see a dedicated God. So as you know, we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17 the last few weeks, and we've seen that this verse is, is central to what's going on in this passage. And as we come to this point in, in, in the book of 1 Kings, in this, in this account, we see that 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 15 describes it by saying, as you remember, this is the Lord talking to David through the prophet Nathan, saying, "I will talking about Solomon, saying, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Well, this, and what we're going to look at this morning, this is the when. This is the when Solomon commits iniquity, and this is the when God corrects and brings judgment on his people. So we take a look this morning at a distracted father, and if you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 43, we see uh, Solomon's fall, and if you read this before, you're familiar with it. You know, how, what it, the things that occurred that happened when Solomon fell, how he had so many wives and so many concubines and uh, so much excess of things. But let's, let's take a look at what happens here. Let's take a look particularly at what go, what's going on in Solomon's heart in order for these things to take place. We see in First Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 29, just a whole list of things that, is going, that are going on. We see Solomon at the peak of his empire. We see that he's built the temple, that he's got gold in excess, he's got he's got financial success. He's got economic success. He's even got spiritual success in building a temple like with, with all of these materials and resources that, that no kingdom has ever had. But as we've seen in, in two weeks ago when we were taking a look at Solomon, we saw that he was still with sin. He still was sinful, and we saw some of the compromises he made in taking a wife from Pharaoh's daughter, and in making an alliance with Egypt and sort of making these small compromises, well, now we see these compromises enlarged. We see these compromises and these sins now just taking a greater weight and a greater toll on his empire. We see how Solomon's heart begins to wander away. Well, in chapter 10, verses 14 through 29, how do, where do we see this? We see that the, the compromise and the sin is that the word gold is used 11 times in between verses 14 to 29. Solomon had two tons of gold brought in for for him. He had gold artifacts, a gold throne, gold cups, gold plates, gold utensils, gold chairs, gold tables. Gold gifts were brought to him. We also see in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10 that Solomon is now importing horses and chariots from Egypt. Even more horses and chariots. And then if you look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the the heart of David his father. And For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So we see all this, this excess of gold, this excess of silver... We see this this returning and going back to Egypt, getting horses and chariots and forming these alliances with Egypt and with many other nations, which can be a good thing, but in particular, they went back to Egypt. And then we saw that Solomon loved many foreign women. You know, you hear many commentators are looking at this passage, and they say, well, this is is a political thing that's going on. Solomon is is marrying these women because he wants these political ties in order to to conduct trade and to conduct business. But we see Solomon's affections. We see that this wasn't just a political strategy or a political move, but he, he clung to these women in love. And he clung to their gods in love. And if you look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, you see how Solomon started off and that he loved the Lord. And as, his, as we see his decline, we see that he loved these women. He loved their gods. And his heart was turned away. So it reminds us of what, what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where the Lord is talking about Israel and their king, and essentially what not to do. And he says, he's talking about the king in Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17, saying, Only he, the king, must not acquire for himself many horses or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Check. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Check. Lest his heart turn away. Check. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold check. So Solomon, it's like in this turning away and his heart being turned from from the Lord to these other gods, and he's completely forgotten God's law. He's completely forgotten God's word and that he should obey it. His compromises and his, his short stepping over the line has now brought him to a place where his empire is in peril. So ultimately what we want to see here is what began as a small compromise resulted in the loss of Solomon's empire. But we see all these decisions, we see all these external things going on with Solomon, and we see his decisions in serving other gods and building altars with them and having this excessive gold and silver and horses and chariots, but what's going on in Solomon's heart? If we could sit down with Solomon like we did two weeks ago and just, just have a conversation with the, the most interesting man in the world, the, the wisest man in the world, and just ask him, listen, why? Why? Why, Solomon? What, what's going on on the inside? For, when you made these decisions, I mean, you started off well and everything was great, but, but really, what's, what's going on in the heart? I imagine he'd probably say something like that's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you want to turn there, I, I'll go ahead and begin reading. If, if we were to sit down with Solomon, he'd probably say this as to why he, he went this route. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and planted, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I brought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions, herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So we see that Solomon's end in pursuing these different choices that he's made, that end up resulting in the fall of his empire, is all after pleasure. Pleasure is Solomon's end. Pleasure is Solomon's goal. I want to see how much pleasure I can get so I can see what's good for the children of man. I want to go after pleasure. I want to go after joy. I want to go after fulfillment. I didn't keep my eyes from any sort of pleasure. I didn't keep my heart from going after whatever I wanted because I wanted to test and see how much is too much. How much is enough? Will I be fulfilled? And ultimately, it's vanity. Solomon's quest was for pleasure and joy in this life. His search for pleasure outside of God destroyed him and caused him great pain, and, and it resulted in the loss of his empire. The question for us this morning is, is this your pursuit? Do you feel as though your life will have meaning, will have purpose, and will have meaning in, a, in something? Is, is your goal pleasure? Whether it's pleasure in a, in a job, in a, a relationship, in something you can achieve or something that you can do, do you feel as though your life will have meaning only when you find pleasure in something. The the next thing we can learn from Solomon is that this is a man who had everything. He had everything, the resources, the the gold, the silver, the wealth, the people, the connections, the power, the money, everything. And yet he was still unsatisfied. No pleasure could still fill his heart, nothing. You and I, we we don't have all these things. We just, we're easy to please, you know. A vacation, a, a job, a car, a house, a picket fence, a good job, good marriage, good, good family. Those things, are, those things are good for us. We think that ultimately if we have those things, we will have pleasure, we will have joy. But we should learn from Solomon and that all that he had, he, he still remained unfulfilled. Your search for pleasure won't be quenched by the things in this life. Only with Jesus there is eternal joy and eternal pleasure. We read in the, the book of Psalms, chapter 16, verse 11, that in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is with Jesus who is at God's right hand. This is with Christ that we will only find fulfillment and true pleasure and true joy that nothing in this world could ever give us. So we see how that the, that the greatest threat to Solomon's empire wasn't a foreign enemy, No one came in and took Solomon down. No one had this this more mighty or more powerful army. No one else came up with more resources or more gold or more silver and just kind of pushed them to the side. It wasn't an economic crisis or it wasn't even a calamity or a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake or, or Sodom and Gomorrah's instances where fire is raining down from heaven. No, what destroyed Solomon's empire was sin, the sin of his heart. Solomon's greatest threat to his kingdom wasn't wasn't any of these foreign enemies or, 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 or different things or economic crisis. Solomon's greatest threat to his kingdom was sin in his idolatrous heart. And the greatest threat to our relationship with God is not something outside of us. It's not something uh, beyond you or something outside of you that if that happens to you or this happens to you, then you just don't know what's going to go on. The greatest threat to our relationship with God and our orientation with him is, is our sin is our idolatrous heart, that we will somehow put something above him, that we will somehow try to seek or find pleasure or joy or satisfaction in something else besides him. Also we see that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he was susceptible to sin's enticement. Sin turned humanity's wisest man into a fool. This was the the guy who had, remember two weeks ago, he had a, a breath of knowledge like the sands of the seashore? And he probably thought he was, was a lot smarter and a, too clever. He said here in the Ecclesiastes, he said, I still have my wisdom with me. Now, I, I pursued these things, but I still had wisdom. I was, I was keeping it in check, in modesty. Sin turned Solomon into a fool. In you know, order to do the same thing to you and I. So the application for us is to not think that we're smarter than sin. Don't think you're more clever to, that, that, that you won't fall in sin's enticements and sin's snares. No, sin—it's it's been around for a while. It deceived Adam and Eve, and it will deceive you and I. It deceived Solomon, and it will deceive you and I. Let's not think that we are somehow more hot and more high, or more mighty, or too clever for sin. Because sin will make us fools like Solomon if we give in to its enticement and fall into its traps. First Corinthians chapter ten, verses twelve through fourteen. It tells us, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Like, examine yourself. If you think you stand, take heed. Look around lest you fall. Not because of anything outside of you, but because of the sin within you. John Owen, a, a famous Puritan, noted that we should be killing sin before it kills us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So next we see in 1 Kings chapter 11, we see the fall of Solomon in verses 9 through 40. We see as the consequences to Solomon's disobedience are, are that God raises up these enemies. So now we see the Prince of Peace, the guy who everybody used to like, God is now sovereignly raising up enemies as a consequence to Solomon's disobedience. And we won't take time to go through exactly who these enemies are, but you can see them in verses 9 through 40. But we do want to point out one of those enemies who, who God raised up. And this, this guy was named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was in charge of Solomon's workforce. It says that he was able and that he was industrious. And what happens is uh, Solomon uh, appointed Rehoboam to be captain of his workforce. And as Rehoboam's going outside of Jerusalem one day, he encounters a prophet named Ahijah. And Ahijah tells him, listen, God has appointed you to take over 10 tribes of Israel's kingdom. God is saying to, to Jeroboam that through, through the prophet that I'm going to split the kingdom and you're going to take 10 tribes. Because of Solomon's disobedience and going after other gods. And Jeroboam, he, he, he receives this prophecy and he, he, he realizes that he's going to be the next appointed king. But Solomon, he develops this Saul and David-like relationship with Jeroboam. When he, he hears about this, that Jeroboam's going to be his, his God-appointed successor, he gets angry at him and he, he tries to f- pursue him and kill him. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt. And we see that Jeroboam, later on, that Jeroboam's time in Egypt ends up having a a great implication on his reign and his rule. But Jeroboam was chosen by God to be king of Israel, and because of this, Solomon sought to kill him. So we see now that how does this this division of the kingdom happen? We see that God has has taken away the empire from Solomon, although not completely. We'll look at that a little bit later on. But we see, how how does this division of the kingdom happen? See that Rehoboam, we see next that he believes that he's going to be king and that all Israel is going to come up under him, but God has a different plan. He's told Jeroboam previously beforehand that the kingdom is going to split, it's going to divide, although not in the days of Solomon, but in the days of his son. So how does this happen? Well, as we take a look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 24, we see that it happens through the foolishness of man and, it, and through the sovereignty of God. So next we see a deceived son in Rehoboam. And we just want to give a, a timeline from, uh, from 1 Kings chapter 12 of Rehoboam's reign. We just want to give a timeline of what's going on. In 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 43 ends with this. It says, And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned at his place. If you look at Rehoboam, and the Bible doesn't really talk about too much about Solomon's other children or if he had any other children, but Rehoboam is talked about as being his son. Sure, it's not his only son, but it, this was his son. So if you can imagine Rehoboam's growing up and his, his coming up, he was 40 years old when he took rain, and you can imagine him sitting at the feet of Solomon as a young boy, hearing these proverbs from Solomon, hearing things like this, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Rehoboam, incline your ears to what God's saying, obey his commandments, but Instead, Rehoboam rejects his father's instruction and then rejects God. We see Rehoboam is a deceived son. And we see in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 12, we see Rehoboam's rise to power. He goes to Shechem, and he goes and has this meeting with everybody because they want to make him king. And and instead, he he goes through, and and, and one request that they have of him, Jeroboam, he comes back from Egypt around this time, and the one request that the people have of Rehoboam They said, We're willing to make you king, but Solomon has has put this oppression on us. Work has been really hard. Things have not been going well. We we just want to light a load and we will serve you, Rehoboam. Just just lighten the load a little bit. So Rehoboam says, Okay, let me take three days to go get some advice about this and I'll I'll come back to you with an answer. Rehoboam has has two choices now that he can make. He can take the advice of Solomon's advisors, as we see here. He can take the advice of Solomon's advisors who were wise, or he can take the advice of his peers those who he grew up with, his his sort of new cabinet. So Rehoboam takes three days to to mull it over, and his his wise counselors tell him, Rehoboam, listen, if you serve these people, if you approach them like Solomon did in his beginning with a servant's heart, willing to serve these people, then they'll they'll go with you, they'll they'll ride with you, they'll stay with you. He's like, okay. So he goes and listens to what his his friends have to say. He goes and hears what they have to say, and they, they bring this sort of slogan to his campaign. They say, listen, no, 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 Rehoboam, your, your father was soft. you you're gonna, you got to be tougher. If you want these people to follow you, you want to increase this empire to be greater, they've got to they follow you, increase their workload. As a matter of fact, we see what they said to him in, ch- in chapter 12, verse 10. It says, and the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you shall lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Just tough, just this this sort of macho thing. Rehoboam is reckless. He doesn't get it. He's taking this advice from his peers, and he's just just prideful. He's reckless. He doesn't know what he's doing. And this is how he he returns. He chooses the advice of his peers, and he goes back to the people, and as a result, the people reject him. They say, enough with this guy. How can we submit to someone who's so prideful, who's so reckless? He's going to now beat them with scorpions, with this whip with glass and daggers in it. He's going to now, instead, instead of showing them grace and lightening their load, he's going to increase their workload. So we see in verses through 16 that the people weren't having this. But also we see prior to, before we get to that, look at Verse 15. It says in verse 14, it says, And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shea to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. We could conclude that the moral of this story is to, to listen to, to, to a wise advice. Listen to those who have experience. Listen to those who are older than you. And that's, that's good advice. That's great. But the story doesn't stop here. Verse 15 tells us why Rehoboam acted the way that he did. It tells us why Rehoboam did what he did. It tells us that, it was a, that Rehoboam acted in this way because it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. You see, Rehoboam was foolish. He was prideful. He was stupid. He didn't get it. But even in his foolishness, even in his deciding to try to, uh, d- to be independent and not obey the, the laws and the rules of God, he's still under the sovereignty of God and that God will accomplish his plan and purposes. We see that Rehoboam is a classic example of Proverbs 21.1 where it says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Rehoboam had, had made this free choice and this free decision to act foolishly and God didn't violate that. God didn't make him do this. He goes to the wise counselors and, he, and he, he, he hears their advice and he's not really feeling it. Then he goes to those who are, who are his peers and they get his blood boiling. He likes that. So he, he makes this decision to execute, his, to execute things in this way. So Rehoboam will be totally responsible for his actions and choices, but ultimately his strings are attached to God. And his attempts at rebellion against God God's word only fulfills it. For you and I, we, if we could put ourselves in the place of these, this people who are who is seeing and hearing the, the pride and the, the, the just craziness and the, the foolishness of, of Rehoboam, what do we take from that? That we may see the foolishness and pride that runs rampant in the world around us. And we may say, you may look at the news headlines and different things, political decisions, moral decisions, all these things, and you just may shake your head and say, Where is God at? What is God doing? How could he permit this to happen? How could he let this happen? What, what kind of world am I living in? Where is God at? Things that seem foolish somehow may affect your life, but the truth is that God is in control. And he is always sovereignly working in and through the actions of, of sinful people to fulfill his plan and his, his glory. So this for us today, this can be comfort. Or this can be a warning. We can take comfort and rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that even when our foolishness, so the, the foolishness of others or political decisions or moral decisions, they seem to affect us. And it's sad and it's tragic and it may be hard to reconcile with. We can take comfort in the fact of knowing that God is in control. We can take comfort in the fact of knowing that God is ultimately working for our good and for his glory and he will accomplish his plans and his purposes. We can rest in the fact of knowing that God is good and he's working for our good and for his glory. Also this could be a warning. Today you may be here, you may be like Rehoboam. You may be independent, you may be prideful, you may think that your actions, you're not accountable to anybody for your actions, and you're just gonna do whatever you want. You're just gonna act thinking independently from God and from anybody else. You may have acted in this way, you may still be acting in this way. Know that God's will will always be accomplished. God is sovereign in his plan and he will execute it and it will be fulfilled. Part of that plan is judgment on our sins if we do not repent. Rehoboam is responsible for his actions. And you and I, when we are independent and prideful and foolish and thinking that we don't have any accountability to anyone else, our our strings are attached to God. We will be responsible for our actions. And God is swift in the execution of his justice if we do not repent. What will be your response to God's absolute sovereignty? Will you rest in knowing that he is ultimately in control, even in the frustrating and foolish things in the world that we live in? Or will you be like Rehoboam on a a power trip, seeking to establish your own sovereignty, neglecting to acknowledge God? So we see that God continues to work this way even throughout the rest of the Old Testament. That even through the foolishness and sinfulness of of people, that he continues, his plan continues to be fulfilled. It continues to to be met, and it will be done. So we see in the rest of Rehoboam's reign is his pride, and in chapter 12, verse 1 through 15, his pride splits the kingdom. He sends Ador, Ad, Adoram to enforce labor on, on Israel. Adoram is, is, is Rehoboam's captain of labor, and he, he goes to execute this, this plan of doubling their labor and then beating them with scorpions. He goes and he does this, and what happens is Israel rebels, and they, they stone Adoram. They stone him and they kill him, and, and what happens is Rehoboam flees to the mountains. He flees to Jerusalem. And if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 14, we see a little bit more about the reign of Rehoboam. And we see that he ends up in chapter 11, he ends up plotting then and trying to take this, go to war with Israel after they stone his captain of the workforce. He ends up trying to go to war with them and God intervenes and tells him that he he shouldn't do it because this division of the empire is ultimately from him. So Rehoboam, after this, he listens to the word of the Lord and he begins his reign. after After this incident, he begins his reign for the first three years listening to God. 2 Chronicles chapter 11 and 12 tell us this, that for the first three years, he walked after the statutes of David. And he walked after the statutes of Solomon, obeying God. But shortly after that, in his fifth year, he begins to rebel and to abandon God. 1 Kings chapter 14 verse 21 tells us that because of his unfaithfulness to God and his abandoning God, the Lord raises up Shishak, the king of Egypt, to come against Jerusalem, and Rehoboam hu- eventually humbles himself and buys, buys King Shishak, the pharaoh, out of destruction by giving away Solomon's golden artifacts. 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, summarizes the reign of Rehoboam by stating that he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. So we see that Rehoboam's idol was, 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 not, was not like Solomon. It wasn't pleasure, but it was pride. Rehoboam's heart was filled with pride and self-exaltation. He imagined himself smarter than anybody else. He thought he was wiser than anybody else. No one could tell Rehoboam anything. <clears throat> he, sought to, to, he thought of himself mightier than Israel's greatest king. And he thought himself smarter than Israel's greatest advisors. Rehoboam's exalted view of himself led him to make foolish decisions, and his pride blinded him from obeying God and ruling effectively. So the question for us is, is the same. In what ways do, does your pride keep you from obeying God and having, having a proper perspective of him? What are those things in which you are prideful about that you, no one can tell you anything different, that you think you're, you're good, that you're smarter than or, or wiser than, and you just you're going to pursue your own way and your own agenda in, sort of independently because you've got it? In what ways does your pride deceive you and convince you that you're better and smarter than anyone about anything, even God? For Rehoboam and for us, the proverb is is true. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So Rehoboam begins by being being reigning over one tribe of Israel, Judah. And he messes that up, but he messes that up by reigning over with Israel because of his pride. And he ends up leading Judah astray, leading them into sin, leading him into idolatry, ultimately because he's too prideful ultimately because he chooses not to, to heed the counsel of God and, and seek out God's wisdom and obey God's commandments. So next thing we see here in moving on, we see a disturbed successor. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25, here we see Jeroboam. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 through, through verses 14, chapter 14, verse 20, we see the reign of Jeroboam. And what's going on with Jeroboam is that we saw previously that he, he had met a prophet, and the prophet told him that he was now going to be king over ten tribes. We saw that he was able, and he was industrious, and when Israel rebelled against Rehoboam and stoned his captain of the workforce, the people made Jeroboam king, thus fulfilling the word of God. They made Jeroboam king, and what we see here with Jeroboam is the beginning of his reign is characterized by this. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25, it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to, to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to this people, said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and he put the other in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam is this disturbed successor. You see that he begins his reign not by obeying the words of God, not by obeying the commandments of God. And we saw in 1 Kings chapter 11 that, if it, that, that when Ahijah commissioned him as, as him as his being commissioned king, he told him, if you obey the Lord and follow his statutes and follow what he says and follow his laws, then God will build you a sure house. God will give you, let you reign over whatever you desire, Jeroboam. If you, just, if you just seek the Lord, if you obey his commandments and follow his word, the same sort of commissioning that David gave to Solomon and the same commissioning that the Lord gave to Joshua, obey the word of the Lord, follow his commands. And what happens with Jeroboam is that he rejects this advice. Well, why does he reject the advice? Because he's fearful. He looks around and he sees that, that Rehoboam is in Jerusalem, He's got the temple there. He's got the sacrifices there. And Jeroboam is over a bunch of people who still want to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So they go and they make trips to Jerusalem. And as they go and make trips to Jerusalem, Jeroboam observes them going out and coming back in. And he says, Man, if this keeps going on, the people are just going to go and stay in Jerusalem. And they're going to make Rehoboam king over everything all over again. And what's going to happen is they're going to kill me. So I've got to come up with something, I've got to to do something in order to to secure this thing for myself. I've got to do something to to have more power, I've got to do something to have more security. So what happens with Jeroboam is that he, he goes and he makes his own religion. Jeroboam makes his own altars. He, he does this thing because of his time spent in Egypt. You can imagine that he's got, he's got this idea. He starts talking to his heart, as Solomon did. We saw in Ecclesiastes. He starts talking to his heart, and if that's never a good thing. But what happens here is that he goes and makes his own religion. He goes and he says, I'm going to get these golden calves, and I'm going to say, here, O Israel, here are your gods. I'm going to do something more convenient. And instead of going to Jerusalem, let's stop that. Instead of going there to make sacrifices and, and offerings, we're going to bring it to you. We're going to give you something more manageable. We're going to give you something more convenient. Just, just stay here and worship. And the reason why he, he erects these two golden calves is, is that he's essentially saying that, you know, Israel, this isn't different. This is something that we've seen before. It's just another way of looking at God. It's the, it's the same God who delivered you from Egypt. It's the same God that you're going there to worship, but he's right here now. It's just another way, it's a different way of of looking at God. He's more manageable this time. He's more more controllable. He's more, he's easy to manage. And so what here Jeroboam does, he he makes his own religion. He makes two golden calves. He places them at two of Israel's historical sites. Just like Jerusalem was the place where God set his name and set his glory, uh, Jeroboam goes and places these two golden calves at two historical sites, saying, well, you can still go to a place where where your ancestors went to worship. He makes his own temple and he appoints his own feasts. He creates a feast one day after the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And we saw this in Exodus where God appointed feasts. Jeroboam makes his feast one month after and one day after the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So what's going on with Jeroboam? What's going on inside of his heart? What what we see that's going on with Jeroboam is ultimately he wants more control. He wants more power. But what lies beneath that is fear. What lies beneath that is insecurity. See, he doesn't really trust God's word. His idol is precariousness. It's it's insecurity. He he can't really stand on God's word because he doesn't feel that it's really going to come to pass. He doesn't feel that God's really going to do what he says, so he's got to take control of the situation. Instead of trusting in the word of God, he turns to religion. And this idol of precariousness is the same thing to you and I because if we fail to trust in the word of God, If we fail to trust in God's promises, if we fail to trust in the finished work of Christ and what God has done for us, then we will ultimately turn to religion. No, you may not serve golden calves, you may not turn to Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or something like that, but you are turning to a system of works that tries to get your acceptance with God, that tries to control the situation, that tries to get for yourself security, and ultimately that will turn your heart away from God. When we don't trust in the Word of God, when we don't cleave to the word of God and see that his promises are good. You can take those to the bank because God is good and he is faithful to his promises. To those who are in Christ, to those who love and obey and believe in his finished work in our place for our sins, we have promises to stand on. But like Jeroboam, oftentimes because of our sinful hearts, we begin to, to distrust these promises. We begin to, to think twice about, if God really said this, I, I don't know, I've I got to secure the situation. And we end up turning to, to things we can do. Your idol may not say, here, O Israel, all your calves, but your idol may say, work harder, try harder, do better, achieve more. So we see this, this idol of precariousness with Jeroboam. What is it that your heart is tempted to, to trust in more than the promises of God? What do you say or do that says, this is more sure? God's word is, is good, it's, it's fine. I, he made this promise, he made these promises, but, but this is more sure. My, my job is more sure. I feel like if I could just get a better job, if I, if, if I could just get a house, if I, if I get this achievement or this accolade or this, this thing or this relationship, this person, this, 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 this family, this ideal, this success, it, I, I, this is good, I can, I can stand on that. It's religion. You're making your own religion, your own Rayshonism, Joeism, Maryism, Billyism, whatever ism. It's, 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 you're making your own religion of trying to, 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 to grant security for yourself, to, to build up security for yourself. What do you say that, say or do that says this is more, su- more sure and this is more sufficient? Matthew Henry says that a practical disbelief of God's all-sufficiency is at the bottom of our treacherous departures from Him. A practical disbelief of God's all-sufficiency is at the bottom of our treacherous departures from him. Do we believe that God is sufficient? Do we believe that his word is enough, that we can stand on his word? Or will we be like Jeroboam, just precarious, insecure, got to secure something for ourselves? So with the rest of Rehoboam, we see that he's, as we look at chapter 14, we see that he's confronted twice by prophets. One prophet confronts him and tells him that that Josiah, a descendant of David who hasn't even been born yet, he calls him by name, will sacrifice Jeroboam's priests on the altars that they have built. We see this in chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, and he tells Jeroboam that the altar will be torn down. The next time a prophet confronts him is is Ahijah again, and Jeroboam's son falls ill, falls sick. And so Jeroboam sends his wife to go to Ahijah and, and ask, what's going to happen to his son? And Ahijah tells Jeroboam that his son is going to die And as a result, what's going to happen is that ultimately Israel will be punished and scattered from their land because of the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's son will die because of his disobedience to the Lord and his idolatry. And ultimately Israel will be punished and scattered from their land. These ten tribes will be scattered for the sins of Jeroboam. We see this taking place throughout the rest of the the Old Testament. God fulfilling his word to Jeroboam. So the next thing that we see here is, is a dedicated God. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 11. Look at verses nine through 13. We see a dedicated God. We see that Israel is, is back in this place. The, two, the kingdoms have divided. They've split Judah on one hand and the, ten tribe, the other 10 tribes of Israel on the other and they both fall into idolatry with their, their first kings. Mostly because of, of Solomon's so, such a great example. They fall into idolatry. They go after their own things. And Solomon, this ultimately falls back on Solomon. Something that the Lord tells Solomon in 1 Kings. He says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him <clears throat> concerning this thing, that he should not go after, all, after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statues that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Talking about Jeroboam. Yet for the sake of, your, of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. And for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen, so what's going on here with Solomon? Israel's back in this rebellious place again. What is God going to do? God could just, he, he's just if he just wiped them out or just went to choose another people. They've become like the nations all over again. This is, this is the exodus, the judges, all over again. Israel is back in rebellion. They're back in idolatry. It would be easy for God to just wipe them out, to just end them, to abandon them, to, d- to destroy them. But he, he doesn't. He tells Solomon right here in this verse that he's going to remain faithful to them. He's going to, he's going to punish them. He's going to bring judgment on them, but he's going to remain faithful to his covenant. He lets Solomon know that he's going to discipline him. And we see back from the verse that we read previously in 2 Samuel that he's going to be to him a father. He's going to be to him a father. Solomon's going to be like him a son. And when he commits iniquity, he will discipline him. He will chastise him, but he's, he's not going to take the kingdom away. He's not going to do him like Saul and completely abandon him, but he's going to remain faithful to his covenant. So we see that Solomon has got to deal with the consequences of his sin. We see in verses 12, and and, and we see the verse 12 that God tears away the kingdom and gives it to, to Jeroboam, but he doesn't tear it away completely. Israel's, we see that David's offspring may be afflicted because of Solomon's sin. David's offspring may be may be afflicted. They may grieve over this, and that, that they had it so good, and now they've lost it. They may be afflicted because of Solomon's sin, but they won't be abandoned. Israel's and their kings' disobedience may derail the covenant of God, but, but they can't destroy it. God tells Jeroboam that that for the sake of David, for the sake of David, that there will always be a lamp in Jerusalem from his from his descendants, that there will be always be a lamp before him in Jerusalem. So God remains faithful to the covenant that he made with David. God doesn't tear away all the kingdom, but he he sovereignly splits it, giving one tribe to to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and and giving the rest to Jeroboam. So what do we we grasp from this? God's covenant with David is, is bigger than Solomon's sin. It's bigger than Rehoboam's sin. It's bigger than Jeroboam's sin. God's covenant with David is bigger than that. God remains faithful to his covenant, not because of anything that Israel did, not because of anything good that was within their kings, not because of who Solomon was or who Rehoboam was or who Jeroboam was, because they were sinful, they were wicked, they were idolatrous, but he remains faithful to his covenant because he is God, because it is for his glory, because it is for the good of his people, ultimately because it will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the lamp that will stand before God forever. Jesus is the, the king who will reign forever from, from the line of David. And it it's for the sake of David. It is for the sake of Christ who will be the king forever. It is for that sake that God keeps and continues his covenant with these people. For the sake of David, God won't give Solomon what he deserves. He doesn't take the kingdom away from Solomon in Solomon's day. He doesn't completely take the kingdom away from Solomon because of his tragic fall. He doesn't take it away completely. But only for the sake of David, God will not give Solomon what he deserves. He won't put him away as he did Saul. So just as Solomon wasn't given what he deserved because of God's covenant with David, you and I, we're we're not given what we deserve because of God's eternal covenant, this same covenant, this same plan with David to, to establish a king who will reign forever because of his sake. Because of the sake of Christ, who lived the life in our place and then died in our place for our sins. For his sake, you and I, if we believe and trust in his finished work in our place, we don't get what we deserve. When we sin, when we fall, when we fail, when we pursue idols, while we pursue idols in sin, while we were sinners, while we were rebellious, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so in the same way as as God is looking, sort of looking over and passing over these sins committed by Solomon and and Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and he's punishing them temporarily, but he's not giving them what they really deserve. He's he's passing over these sins. God does the same in, in passing over our sins and puts them on Christ. He puts this sin on his king who will reign forever. He does the same with our sins. If we believe that his work is for us, our sin has been placed on Christ. So today you may feel that your sin has completely broken and ended your relationship with God. You may, sin, you may feel that your, your sin is somehow in the same category with Solomon's, that you've, you've fallen and there's, there's just, just messed up badly, that there's no hope for you, that you've out God's grace and out God's mercy and out this covenant that he's promised to fulfill in Christ. Take confidence. Because of the covenant that God has made with Christ, because he has sent his son to die for sins and to be raised to life for, so that we could be accepted and, and be reconciled to God with fellowship and joy and pleasure with him. Because of this, we are accepted and forgiven when we fail. It is for the sake of Christ that we don't get what we deserve. Our response, repent, believe. When you fall, when you fail, when you mess up, be humble. Take humility, repent. Repent. Don't take God's grace in vain. Don't act independently and and act pridefully and act precariously like Jeroboam and Rehoboam, but but turn to God. Trust in his eternal covenant with his son that he has forgiven us and that he has accepted us. Trust in the everlasting covenant that God has made with his son on your behalf. Even though our consequences and temporary, God gives us consequences and temporary disciplines and judgments for our sins. The rays of hope shine through those dark clouds, and they let us know that God's love for us is forever, that nothing can separate us from his love. That there may be consequences like Solomon faces, that there may be disappointments, there may be judgments, but ultimately we don't get what we deserve, we get grace. God disciplines us as sons. He disciplines us in love, and nothing can separate us from that, not because of anything that we've done, but because of Christ, because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we just thank you for, for speaking to us. Help us, Lord God, not to, not to cherish idols, idols of pleasure, idols of pride, idols of precariousness in our heart as, as we see that these kings did. But when we do treasure these things, when we have treasured these things, Lord God, help us to turn in repentance Help us forsake these things and realize that all pleasure is in you. All joy is in you. Security is in you. Humility and peace and something to boast in is in you, not in ourselves. Continue to speak to us. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word that he will point us to Christ. Christ who was the perfect sacrifice and substitute for our sins. If we believe and trust on his finished work. We can know that we've been accepted by you, Lord God, and that we will stand on this. Even even though we continue to still sin and still fail, we know that we have acceptance and forgiveness ultimately found in you because of Christ and your covenant with him. We thank you for these things, and in Jesus' name, amen.